Welcome to Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And also today we have a special guest. Mike Mason, hello. Yes, we have Mike Mason, line editor of Call of Cthulhu, with us here in the room. And this episode we're talking about the subgenre of folk horror and how it relates to Call of Cthulhu. But before we get into all that, what is going on? So if you come over to our site, BlasphemousTomes.com, you'll find we have some audio handouts for Scott's scenario, Blackwater Creek. Yes, our good friend Corey Welch recorded Blackwater Creek with the Skype of Cthulhu crew some time back. And they've released it as a whole bunch of episodes. And when he did so, he approached us and asked us to do readings of the handouts in there. He also asked a musician friend of his to do some background music. And the end results are pretty damn good. You can find those free of charge on our website. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Particularly if you're running Blackwater Creek online, you may find them useful. We also have a Discord server, a new service that we've added to our plethora of social media. Do you want to tell us more about it, Scott? I'd love to, Paul. It's basically a chat forum, right? It is, yeah. It's it's sort of a combination of um, text-based chat with the option for voice chat in there and and even video calls. Initially, I mean, we're just using it for general chit-chat, but we'll we'll branch out from there to have conversations with people, voice conversations. And we've also done things like install a dice roller on there as well. This may become our new standard platform for actually doing some online games. I was going to say, can you, you know, is it a platform for gaming? Could you use that, it that way? That, that's exactly what it started out as. Amazing. Now, by coincidence, we have Mr. Mason with us again today, but the last time we were all recording together was at the Milton Keynes Literary Festival. Yes, we did a special seminar at the Literary Festival, the topic of which was the overlap between role-playing games and literature, which seemed appropriate for a literary festival. Uh, so we did record that. If you check your RSS feeds, you should find it in your feed. And now that we have you with us, Mike, what news from Chaosium? Well, what news, hey? Well, what can I tell you about today, uh, guys? We've just released Reign of Terror in hardback on uh, General Sale, which is the uh, Mark Morrison scenario um, set in revolutionary France, in Paris, uh, that can be played as a standalone or as part of the, uh, the epic horror on the Orient Express campaign. So that's now in uh, now in shops and um, um, yeah I'm, I'm I'm a bit out of the loop on this one. So you talk about it being in in hardcover. How big is it? I I'd, when I heard that it was like an add-on for Horror on the Orient Express, I thought it was like a scenario. It's a uh, roughly about a hundred hundred twenty page book, and um, the actual scenario is in two parts. There's actually two scenarios. Let's be honest, two scenarios are the part one that happens actually just before the French Revolution, and part two happens during the French Revolution or mm. the, the, the revolutionary era. And obviously, um, because we're aware that not everyone is going to want to run it as part of the Orient Express, and and it, it works very well as a standalone scenario, we wanted to add a little bit more uh, detail about the actual um, setting of Paris in, in, in that era. So the additional material is included to help set the scene, providing you know details on the life in the city, uh, in 
you know, at various important kind of things that were going on over that period. But equally, we've thrown in, whilst there is a set of pre-generated characters for the scenarios, there's also some advice about creating characters in the period with some different occupations for that era. And also, uh, just to kind of round out the book, because if you enjoy playing those scenarios and want to continue, we've thrown in uh, a number of scenario seeds, quite detailed scenario seeds, for people then to go and devise or riff off their own kind of scenarios if they want to take it forwards. Very cool. The other book that's going to be following on its uh, hot on its heels is Peterson's Abominations, uh, which is uh, out already in PDF, but the print uh, version will be out uh, in you know uh, within the next month or so. And that is the collection of scenarios written by Sandy Peterson and myself to basically showcase a lot of the adventures that Sandy's written over the years that he's run at conventions. They're all set in the modern day, all come with pre-generated characters and are but particularly, you know, fine for the kind of one night of horror style of Call of Cthulhu. So that will be coming out very soon. And we've also just released a PDF of Alone Against the Dark, which is a, um, one might term a, a classic era Call of Cthulhu scenario that is a solo play, as in it's a choose-your-own-adventure style scenario requiring just you, no keeper, and is actually a, a mini campaign that takes you uh, around the world, different locales, uh, to try and stop the coming darkness is probably best all I can say about that one. PDF out now, and uh, again, a uh, print version to, to follow in a uh, couple of months' time. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is archaic. It's an adjective. One, belonging to or characteristic of a much earlier period. Ancient. Two, out of date. Antiquated. Three, of an idiom, vocabulary, etc. Characteristic of an earlier period of a language and not in ordinary use. I could make a jibe about the 70s here, but I think probably everyone's already got it. And I can see this being a word that most people would probably use in a pejorative sense. I mean, you talk about you know, your car being archaic or a turn of phrase being archaic, and you generally mean that as a bad thing. I don't think Lovecraft ever really used archaic in a pejorative sense. I mean, for him, archaic was something you should really strive for. So on the Lovecraft score chart, this appears 55 times in his main fiction, making it one of his more common adjectives. And I think it's an adjective that can apply just as much to his writing or his writing style, as well as a word that we see in his writing. It's fairly significant. I mean, this is something we may come back to later in the episode. That Lovecraft, I mean, even though he was writing the early 20th century, did not write in a style that really resembled that of his contemporaries. He was very consciously archaic in his style. Well, I mean, you've got the whole choice of shoon rather than shown yeah. uh, and use of the English spelling of colour in the colour out of space rather than the, the American English spelling of it and uh, so on. Yes. Yeah, I, I think given the choice between a contemporary word and an archaic one, Lovecraft would have gone for the archaic one every time. And let's take a look at just what he did go for in some of his writings. From... The festival. Then beyond the hill's crest I saw Kingsport outspread frostily in the gloaming. Snowy Kingsport, with its ancient veins and steeples, ridgepoles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow trees and graveyards, endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets, and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch. 
Ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels, like a child's disordered blocks. Antiquity hovering on grey wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs. Fanlights and small-paned windows, one by one, gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. And from he... The archaic lanes and houses and unexpected bits of square and court had indeed delighted me, and when I found the poets and artists to be loud-voiced pretenders whose quaintness is tinsel and whose lives are a denial of all that pure beauty which is poetry and art, I stayed on for love of these venerable things. And from the colour out of space. The aspect of the whole farm was shocking. Greyish, withered grass and leaves on the ground, vines falling in brittle wreckage from archaic walls and gables, and great bare trees clawing up at the grey November sky with a studded malevolence which Amy could not but feel had come from some subtle change in the tilt of the branches. And from At the Mountains of Madness. Only when we had come very close to the sprawling obstructions could we trace that second, unexplainable fetter to any immediate source. And the instant we did so, Danforth, remembering certain very vivid sculptures of the Old One's history in the Permian Age, 150 million years ago, gave vent to a nerve-tortured cry which echoed hysterically through that vaulted and archaic passage and with the evil palimpsest carvings. Now on to our main topic, folk horror. Well, let's open up with the first question. What is folk horror? We could spend a lot of the, the episode just trying to define that, and we probably will, actually. I was about to say that. We probably will. <laughs> yeah. I, folk horror seems to mean lots of different things to different people. Uh, the term itself was supposedly coined by the director Piers Haggard in an interview with Fangoria in 2003. It was then popularised by the uh, writer and broadcaster and actor Mark Gatiss, who did a series of uh, documentaries on British television about the history of horror. And he did one on, on what he referred to as rural horror or, and, and folk horror in the episode. The folk horror revival, as it's termed, has kind of picked up some traction on Facebook with a, uh, with a group named the Folk Horror Revival, which uh, has become a kind of a focal point for the movement. Created by Andy Pasirek, I think I got his name right there, uh, in 2014, as a means to kind of celebrate music, film, art, literature and theatre in, the, uh, in the field of folk horror. He actually uh, got a quite an interesting definition I picked up that, uh, that Andy had written. I'll quote it, is, uh, saying, um, One may as well attempt to build a box to the exact shape of mist. For like mist, folk horror is atmospheric and sinuous. It can creep from and into different territories, yet leave no universal defining mark of its exact form. Which I think is a good way of summing up that what is folk horror is quite a difficult term to actually pin down precisely. But there are some common ingredients, right, that we might expect to see in a folk horror film or story. So what are these common ingredients? I think what separates folk horror from folk, I mean, I know we're focusing on the horror, but it's called folk horror for a reason, that what separates it from folk is the dislocation from the rest of the world and that that dislocation 
may be frightening, it may be scary, but it may not be. It is a difference between a dusty window in an old cottage and that same window framing an indistinct face peering out. Folk horror is far less about horrification than it is about horripilation, which is another quote Andy put. I'm trying to work out what <laughs> horripilation is. Yeah, um, Hor- that's, that's a new one on me. That's an interesting one, right? yeah. Folk horror is far less about horrification than it is about horripilation. Horripilation. What the hell does horripilation mean? I think it's mean? an interesting quote to go and have a think about. Well, yeah. I think having some new made-up words to define a, a genre is very useful. <laughs> it's very, very we'll, handy, we'll, we'll, we'll come to a few more of those as we go on. Good. <laughs> very cromulent word. Yes. But, so, what if I said rural? Rural settings seems pretty integral to me. Would I be right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's a book which I read recently by Adam Scoville, uh, who's a filmmaker and uh, academic, who wrote this book called Hours Dreadful and Things Strange, which is an analysis of the folk horror movement. One of the things he addresses in there is whether or not rural horror is the same thing as, as folk horror. And he gives examples of what he believes, or you know, other people who try to define what this movement is. Examples of media are things that they consider to be folk horror, but do in fact have urban settings. I mean, you know, one of the things that came up, for example, was Rosemary's Baby. It may be closer to almost think of folk as in community. As Paul said, there are some common themes I think we everyone agrees on that landscape is often pointed out in, in you know within the first breath when anyone talks about folk horror. Often a sense of isolation, but not necessarily individual isolation, although it could be skewed moral beliefs which we see in you know we see the kind of ultimate expression of in in films like the wicker man some form of happening or summoning and a lot of these draw from the unholy trinity of films which are the kind of the uh, the very root of what is considered the folk horror revival another common aspect is that they seem to tie into like what we might call folk memory of supernatural things that are buried in a local communities that go generations back as we see in rosemary's baby as we see in various films that we'll talk about would you say that's also an yeah. element that's common to them yeah there's something that we'll get into a bit later on this idea of something called hauntology which is about the the, the past haunting the present and, you know, I think that is a huge part of what defines folk horror, and that's exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, I think you'd be careful, though. It's not always supernatural, though. Yes. I think that yeah. there is a distinction. It can be supernatural, but it's not always supernatural. The um, other aspects, um, which perhaps might be argued as secondary or, or equal to the ones we've spoken about, are themes such as witchcraft, pagan traditions, folk stories and music fairy tales and, and general you know mythology all tend to kind of be interwoven in some degree to uh, to most of these types of stories there's a very englishness to it and uh, and often you know folk horror is seen as a is an english thing but i think that's not necessarily correct it is a wider thing but it's been exemplified through some english art most countries have got their own folk horror traditions and their own folk horror films and books and so on. The folk horror revival is rooted in British traditions. Most of the terms of reference that we have got here are going to be British creations. It's probably worth just pausing slightly to just give a few examples of non-British uh, examples of potential folk horror material, just so listeners out there can maybe more easily reference it, perhaps. I'm thinking of things like The Blair Witch Project, Haxon, the German film about witchcraft. In literature, 
Ted Klein's uh, novel, The Ceremonies, and also uh, his short story collection, Dark Gods, and the story in particular, The uh, Children of the Kingdom, uh, are all good points into uh, looking at folk horror, perhaps from a, a non-English perspective. Yes, and also possibly Stephen King's Children of the Corn. Now we take a look at folk horror in cinema. So we've mentioned this unholy trinity of films which define perhaps the folk horror movement. So let's take a look at those three films now. From 1968, we find Witchfinder General, although this may be more commonly known over the pond as The Conqueror Worm, even though it's got nothing to do with the Edgar Allan Poe poem of the same name. Uh, Witchfinder General, as uh, those that may know a little bit about the English Civil War and the surrounding period, is a very, very heavily fictionalised version of the life of, or the latter part of the life of Matthew Hopkins, the eponymous Witchfinder General, uh, during the years coming up to the end of the first part of the English Civil War. It's a, it's a fascinating period of history, but boy, is a pretty dark one as well. And yeah, it stars Vincent Price as Matthew Hopkins in, let's say, a, an interesting bit of casting because he makes no attempt to put on an English accent. <laughs> it's a pretty gruelling and dark film. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic piece of work. It was made by a young British director by the name of Michael Reeves, who had made a, a film before with um, Boris Karloff called The Sorcerers, which was terrific. Unfortunately, he died shortly after making this of yeah. uh, an accidental barbiturate overdose, which was a real loss to horror cinema. And what makes this fall into the folk horror genre, would you say? I was about to argue that because when I re when I watched it, I mean, I've watched it years ago, the first time round, and I rewatched it again now and thought, this isn't a horror, this is a historical thriller. Well, I think it's horror because of the, uh, the, the sense of bleakness, I mean, certainly, and the, the building violence and the, you know, the retribution at the end. But as far as it being part of the folk horror movement is concerned, I mean, if we go through that checklist that, that Adam Scoville defined uh, of isolation, landscape, uh, skewed moral beliefs and happening slash summoning. You know, landscape, yes. I mean, it is you know, set in East Anglia. It uses the landscape to quite great effect there. Isolation. There, there is a degree of isolation. It's small communities. It's social isolation. I mean, particularly for the people accused of witchcraft, that is the isolation aspect of it. They're, they're being socially isolated by the accusation. I, I think pretty much the priest's dialogue in the film where he says he feels like, he feels like an outcast in his own community pretty much exactly. sums that up. Skewed moral beliefs. Yeah, going around accusing innocent people of witchcraft for profit. Doesn't get much more skewed than that. <laughs> And the happening summoning, yeah, executions, uh, you know, the, 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 what it's all building towards and the retribution against Matthew Hopkins. Yeah, it just struck me because it is more of a historical piece that it is grounded very much in fact, is that that maybe just, for me, seemed a bit more removed from, from horror. The other thing to remember, Matt, is we, we, as Scott pointed out in the previous section, was that what's termed the folk horror revival is quite English in its initial outlook, and Witchfinder General is, is a film that is quintessentially an English film in in the sense of how it looks, how it feels, and and the not just the subject matter, but but there is a sense of the English landscape that oozes through the film that you the not it not is the same in 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 quite a number of other films. It is, the, the landscape itself does tie in a lot. Um, I've done a fair bit of research on Norfolk and Suffolk folklore for a project I'm working on. 
And there's plenty of instances where the locals describe unusual features of the landscape, because most of North Norfolk and uh, Suffolk is very flat. Whenever you come across a hill, there'll be plenty of instances where they say, oh, it was the devil carrying a cart full of earth across the land that he stumbled and tipped. The, the three hills in particular where that mention gets attributed to. And, of course, you then tie that in with aspects of witchcraft, saying, oh, they've got their power from the devil, and it all kind of feeds into itself then. And then from 1971, a film directed by Piers Haggard, we have Blood on Satan's Claw. You can't really want for a better title than that, can you? <laughs> it needs yeah. an MST3K riff track, though. That film is hilarious if you watch that as we did. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, I found it pretty ropey at the start, but as it went on, I really kind of got into it, actually. Are we, were oh, yeah. you watching a kind of a poor quality print of it? Yeah, I may have been, Mike. Because, I mean, that, that, that obviously can you know affect your viewing pleasure but i mean i've seen a pretty pristine print of this and and yeah okay there's a little bit of hammy acting particularly with the uh, justice of the peace i think oh and, yeah yeah yes. and stuff like that but mostly throughout i find it quite compelling and quite you know it's quite a chilling story in some in some I, respects i found it more interesting in its ideas and its location than the actual story itself i thought it was a bit of a mess i mean it's interesting what you were talking about there paul with the the title because piers haggard didn't want the title the blood on satan's claw i think his his choice was Satan's Skin or something like that. Yeah, it's um, a bit more relevant to the actual film, isn't it? Yeah. So. There was a lot of studio interference in this, and you know, the, the script was heavily rewritten. Initially, it was designed almost as a, you know, a, a series of short films, three distinct stories with the same kicker. But um, you know, the insistence was to rewrite it so that the three narratives wove together a bit. I thought that kind of really screwed up the pacing in certain places, made it a bit difficult to keep track of which characters were involved with which story arcs, and I found it quite a, a muddled, unsatisfying film. Oh, no, no, I think it's great. It's great. Well, we haven't really, really said what it is. It's, it's set in rural 18th century England, and it opens with the finding of some body part or inhuman remains in a ploughed field. At its heart, it's about it's a, it's a film about the corruption of a rural village community, the corruption of individuals yeah. in that who then become ringleaders, who just through human interaction corrupt the entire you know nearly the, the entire village. And so you've got not only a kind of a supernatural corruption, but you've actually got a very human corruption and moral quandary going on as well. There's a great line which appears in there, which is, "Oh, you city folk, you wouldn't know the ways of the rural folk around here." Too true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was weird, weird from my perspective seeing um, a good handful of uh, ex-Doctor Who actors or those that would go on to be in Doctor Who thinking, Christ, the Master's playing a good guy? When did that ever happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've certainly saved the best till last, with the third of the trilogy being The Wicker Man. The we're talking about the Nick Cage version? Oh, obviously, obviously <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, there, there is no other film, is there? There, there is just the That one, film doesn't yes. exist, does I it? Let's just, just, old, old just all agree. There is one version of Wicker Man made in 1973, and there are no other versions that exist. And if you ever get, if you ever tempted to watch a version that's not the 1973 version, just put it away from your mind and walk the, away. But the bees! <laughs> the bees! The bees! But even then, there's how many versions of the 73 one? Oh. God knows. But we're going to do a whole episode about this, folks. So hold your horses. Yes. So next episode, we'll do a follow-up to the Folk Revival show with a special on The Wicker Man. Now, as we mentioned earlier, 
Only one of these films has any supernatural elements in it. Blood on Satan's Claw is definitely a supernatural film, even though, you know, as Mike mentioned earlier, that it's fundamentally about the human corruption involved there. There are arguably supernatural hints in The Wicker Man, but not really. And Witchfinder General, no, not at all. They've both got the hint of, of witchcraft or paganism about them, but... It's a veneer of superstition and occult. Exactly. But it's not the heart of the story, in a sense. Yeah, but on the other hand, all three of them do share those elements that, that Scoville identified. They are very rooted in the landscape of where they're shot. They do all have these skewed moral beliefs. They've all got this sense of isolation, you know, even if it's just social isolation for the protagonists. And they do sort of all build up to fairly horrible happenings. If you've not seen any of these three films, go and see them. Now let's move on and take a look at folk horror in television. Well, as we said earlier, the, the Unholy Trinity pretty much defined the basis for the folk horror revival. But when you pick through it, a lot more of it does seem to come out of 1970s British television. A lot of it out of children's television and, and plays that were done for the BBC. There is a 1970s thing going on here. And we don't just sit in folk horror in, on British BBC TV or, or British films we see it across the board we see it in, in hollywood we see it with the french connection there were films being made in the 70s artistically that were that were pushing boundaries and that were inherently very very creative that that come the 80s and beyond the studios as we all know don't tend to take those kind yeah. of risks anymore and so there was this kind of period that seems to be exemplified in the in the 70s it really hit its peak there that we see across the board there is some sort of zeitgeist in the 70s mm. um, yeah and it's um, that not, does that and it's not just british as well i mean we saw a lot of that in the us and yeah i i think you're right i mean you know the tail end of it came about with you know the fact that uh, studios began to uh, become conglomerations and and were became much more risk averse but the start of it i think was the loosening of social mores particularly the in, in the US uh, with the, you know, the, the scrapping of the Hayes Code. But, uh, you know, on British television uh, and British cinema, the freedom to do more and get away with less censorship meant that there was th th this, this period where people could take risks and they could take risks with subject matter that just would not have been permissible before. And the willingness in children's television programmes on British TV at the time to show really quite disturbing images and disturbing ideas in the film. So if we think about... The Children of the Stones, the, the series that was filmed and based around the Stone Circle at Avebury. Before you even actually watch the programme, the actual intro music and title imagery is, is was enough to scare me away when I yeah. was a child watching it, let alone the actual story. That was absolutely freaky music and, 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 and imagery in the titles. And that came, I think it was uh, followed by a BBC TV series called The Changes, which um, has had a profound influence on me. I remember the title sequence from that years ago, and and um, I couldn't remember what the name was until I kind of rediscovered it and bought the um, bought the actual DVD set. Oh wow! Of the changes and rewatched it and oh, and, and realised how. Well, I mean, I watch it now, and there's, I find it very difficult to believe it could be remade again, certainly for children's TV, and also how groundbreaking it is in terms of its portrayal of different ethnicities and 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 the violence as well, and the sheer kind of nihilism <laughs> of the uh, the actual initial premise of the um, of the program, and I really recommend anyone to kind of search it out. Yeah, but with both of these things, what do you think it is that makes them exemplars of the folk horror movement? 
again because they're very much set in the British landscape or you know the rural landscape and they both hark to things of centuries gone past that are sort of in people's memories and so on in sort of a, a folk memory there's a very rural um, tradition to them both, the, as, as Paul said, with the landscape as well. There are also, what's interesting in both is you have supernatural elements, but kind of from different points of view. Whereas in the Children's Stone, there is a kind of the, the general kind of supernatural and superstitions around stone circles, which is played on. In the changes, you actually have the reverse of that, where actually you have a, a reversion from technology, where actually technology stops working. And people suddenly develop this disgust and then built distrust of technology. And so literally overnight, England turns back from a contemporary 1970s technology into an agrarian culture hmm. overnight. And the implications that would have it. And if you're seen touching technology, you, you, you are clearly, you know, someone who is bad and wrong and needs to be, you know, put down. That's a bit how it will be under Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, better politics Agrarian than society overnight, no technology. And we should also look back to our episode that came out on Boxing Day a few weeks back about the Stone Tape, the Nigel oh, yes. Neal film. Much of his work could be captured within the folk horror revival, I think. Yeah, I think, the, the I mentioned this on the podcast before, gosh, I think way back in episode five. The thing that probably cemented my love of folk horror more than anything else was that one episode that he did for his series Beasts, uh, Baby, which I, I still think is probably the, the scariest and finest bit of folk horror I've ever seen. Uh, absolutely, I can completely concur. It will, uh, you know, just go into it blind. And be prepared at the end. And he did a, a fantastic TV play as well for part of the Against the Crowd series called Murren, which is about a social worker who encounters an old woman in this, this rural community who has been ostracised by her community as being a witch. This is set in 1970s Yorkshire. About the way that he sort of tries to help her and tries to protect her from the community around her and then starts to develop grave doubts. Living in England, uh, you know, from the 70s onwards in that sense, we had it handed to us on the plate because every Christmas we would have the M.R. James mm. uh, Horror Story Christmas adaptation. And then many of those, such as, you know, uh, Whistle and I Come to You, My Lad, um, Wanted to Curious and so on, technically they're not folk horror, but they are. They have, they're very much of the landscape. They're very mm. much, you know, they have potentially, well, they all have supernatural elements in this case, but they well, feature uh, a lot of similarities. And so they feel part of it. And, and those two in particular have got this, this theme of the present being haunted by the past. In both of those cases, they're dominated by old artefacts that are dug up, uh, things that should have stayed buried, that have got no place in the present and bring horror with them. One, one other thing, I mean, we talk about horror in different versions and genres and styles for a long, long time, the, the, the four of us, we will often say to each other, you know, yeah, I've not actually been scared very much. And actually the one commonality I tend listening to you guys now and myself is that the stuff that has actually scared me tends to be something that you might term folk horror. Yes. Anything else has kind of been borderline or not really scary. But the ones that genuinely have affected me at different times, have been clearly in the folk horror camp. And I just find it interesting. Well, I think that part of the reason why this scares us so much is because three out of the four of us were kids in the 1970s. So we were exposed to this stuff at a time when it formed our ideas about what was frightening. It frightened us viscerally at the time and, and moulded us. So as a result, you know, when we think about fear, these are the things we go back to. The 80s and 90s just weren't scary enough. Folk horror in literature. 
We mentioned M.R. James a few moments ago, and yeah, M.R. James may not be you know a lot of people's first idea of folk horror, and certainly in Hours Dreadful and Things Strange, Adam Scoville talks much more about the television adaptations of James's work than the stories themselves. But in all of his stories, there is definitely this connection with uh, the landscape and as i was saying a few months ago with things from the past coming back into the present intruding both of which seem to be very very key to this idea of folk horror i mean there's plenty of instances i can think of in mr james where that happens not just whistle and i'll come to you my lad and warning to the curious that we just talked about but also the likes of the treasure of abbot thomas which is very much they say the treasure that's being guarded at the end of the story and even to an extent the ash tree, because you've got the body mm. that's suspended in the um, in the tree itself of this old witch that's been maybe alive, maybe not in there for a long time. And the stalls of Barchester Cathedral. Yes, in fact, from the from the, again the tree that has um, had rites take place around it. Yeah, mm. Mm, trees, eh? Arthur Macken as well is a name that always mentioned in the next breath to Mr. James. Uh, you know, lots of folkloric influences in stories like The White People, Novel of the Black Seal, uh, and so on. And, you know, a lot of Welsh mythology or retellings of or reinterpretations of fairy myth run through a lot of these stories, as well as, you know, wider uh, pagan belief systems and so on. And again, the landscape, yeah. you know, they, they are absolutely rooted in the landscape of, of southern Wales. What about Alan Garner, Scott? Never read any of his stuff. Didn't he write, like, The Owl Service? That's a he BBC did. adaptation too. Matt? I'm just having a really good moment. I've read a book that you haven't! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I read his Weird Stone of Brisingaman at school. Yeah, It's a great... That's one of my favourites, Weird Stone yeah, of Brisingaman. It's a great story. But, but so, yeah, the, the Owl Service is an adaptation. Um, that was That's, again, you can slot that into the TV as well as the, uh, the actual fiction for folk horror. Yeah, and another kind of young adult classic which I haven't read, which I understand fits into the movement nicely, maybe some of you, you know, have read it, is uh, Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising. I know there's a very cheesy film adaptation of it out there with The Doctor and Lovejoy, but other than that... <laughs> that doesn't age you in any way, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more contemporary, Clive Barker in the, uh, in the Books of Blood collections of his short stories... Uh, but certainly I'd, I'd pick out two that I feel touch into the folk horror mould, which are the uh, the hills, the cities. Uh, in, and, in, uh, in, in the hills. In the cities. hills, the cities, yeah. sorry. And uh, Rawhead Rex. Yeah, Rawhead Rex. I, I mean, that is basically a fairy tale turned into Freudian nightmare. <laughs> yes. I, I, I met Barker at a book signing in the 90, 1980s. My friend Sol Mincer, who uh, listens to this podcast... Uh, used to use the handle online, Rawhead Rex, and I, I was getting a book signed for Sol, and so I mentioned this to Barker, and so he, he drew a picture uh, in the book of Rawhead Rex, in. and it was basically just this giant carnivorous cock on legs. The other literary uh, one we should point people to is Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, how did I overlook that? Well, The Willows and The Wendigo. Yes. But The Willows in particular, I, yeah, that is... One of the most malevolent bits of landscape described in weird fiction. Even though nothing happens in the story, it's just the threat that that something is very, very wrong with that bit of the countryside. It's a masterclass in making reeds evil and and, and the swear of a tree unholy. It's just a masterclass in, in that kind of, you know, representation of the landscape as something wrong.
Now let's take a closer look at the Folk Horror Revival. As we mentioned earlier, the Folk Horror Revival is really rooted in a Facebook group. We'll, we'll link to that from the show notes. And if you're at all interested in Folk Horror, it's well worth joining. Uh, there are some fairly lively discussions on there. It's even spawned off a second group, which is used for people who are making stuff, I, you know, whether it's books, artwork or whatever, and selling that online. There are two main publications, right, that have come out, two books that have come out of this. Have they come out of the people on the website? Yeah, they've been born specifically from the Folk Horror Revival group. They're both titled, you know, the main title is Folk Horror Revival. One subtitled Field Studies, which is a collection of essays on the subject of folk horror. And highly recommended. Yeah, it is terrific. It's, it, uh, apart from anything else, it starts off with an essay by Andy Bachirek called From the Forests, Fields and Furrows, which is... It's a fairly short essay, but it it lays out the uh, the basis for the folk horror movement very nicely, and it was probably my main reference when when researching this. You don't actually have to buy the book in order to read it. It's also on the Folk Horror Revival website, so yeah. I, I'll link to that. The Folk Horror Revival website itself, there's a number of sh- short essays and links off that are all you know worth exploring if you uh, you're getting into this. And the second book is is subtitled Corpse Roads and. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely the lesser of the two books. I mean, it's but yeah, it's still inspirational. It's got lots of very kind of creepy folk horror related photographs in it, and uh, lots of poetry. And they, I mean, if you you know just go onto your favourite online bookseller and put in folk horror, you know, they'll draw up both these titles. But you'll start to there's actually a growing wave of publications. There's a, there's a book of photography of the English countryside under the term of folk horror, which looks at a lot of pagan or, or pre-Christian traditions still still uh, still alive and celebrated in um, you know in English uh, villages throughout the land and, and things like that. There's a there's there's a lot to go into, and a lot will provide you with lots of inspiration for. Uh, for gaming too and if you're interested in in understanding the academic side of it more uh then adam scoville's book hours dreadful and things strange is comprehensive and it goes into you know a lot of the media we've been talking about in a lot more depth i i found quite a dry book in places it's 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 heavy going the folk horror revival books are probably a bit more accessible but if you want a deeper understanding then yeah I'd, i'd recommend it the term revival is part of the header here, folk horror revival. And of course, what we've done for the entirety of the episode is look backwards. And it is a revival. And uh, and so you know, one of the things it does point to is, you know, contemporary works and, and forthcoming works that are that could, could be considered folk horror. So things like, you know, the, the recent film, The Witch, which you guys reviewed, I think. And other films like A Field in England very you know, much rooted in the, the British countryside and that could almost be a kind of a 1970s film well I think any film made by Ben Wheatley maybe not Free Fire but uh, pretty much <laughs> any film before that has got some variation of either horror folk or both in yeah, to some degree even Sightseers even though it's a comedy uh, yes. yeah would probably fit nicely into the folk horror genre you've got Hammer Films the you know, the, the modern uh, iteration of the of the uh, classic company um, Wakewood uh, is very much a you know a tale with occult and uh, supernatural elements to it set in a, a rural community and I guess we'll talk about this more in when we talk about the Wicker Man more fully but uh, the Wicker Tree which is uh, Robin Hardy's uh, uh, more modern follow-up to that uh, to that film based on his uh, novel Cowboys for Christ. I'll throw in Barbarian Sound Studio as well I think yeah. there's there's parts of that that weird thing with the film breaking and and we see the british countryside and it's like a documentary about britain and birds and so on 
But it's also that idea of, um, you know, sort of the spirit of the 1970s mm. represented in modern form. That's right. And of course, coming right up today, I've not, I've not even seen this. I've read the novel, but I've not seen the film yet. The Ritual, um, the uh, yeah. uh, novel by Adam Neville. Yeah, again, I haven't seen the film. I read the book. And I, I think I, I've seen a lot of negative reviews of the book. I thought the book was fantastic. The second half of it is undoubtedly folk horror and also surprisingly Lovecraftian. Without wanting to spoil too much, there's a very solid Lovecraftian reference there that underpins the whole thing. And speaking of books, I read a book recently, uh, The Loney, by Andrew Michael Hurley. I, I believe it's being filmed at the moment. And I think it's, it's one of the best works of folk horror I've encountered. It's uh, set in the 1970s, appropriately enough, and it's basically about a church group that goes up uh, to the northeast of England to visit a holy site, a shrine, uh, in the hope of, of curing one of the children who's a member of their congregation and encounter somewhat older practices. It sounds a bit Wicker Man from that description. It's not. It's a very subtle book and very, very disturbing. I, I really cannot recommend that book highly enough. And also bringing us up to date, because they've just done a few more episodes and putting in some black comedy, is The League of Gentlemen. There's a scene in uh, The Wicker Man when, when he goes into the, the, the shop. I am expecting her to come out and say, <laughs> you know, the, the classic phrases. But, but no, it's not, it's not that. Yeah, I mean, they very consciously riffed on all sorts of bits from The Wicker Man. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that the people, you know, um, responsible for that uh, are very heavily involved with the folk horror movement. I mean, mm. for example, I, I went to a folk horror event uh, in late 2016 down in London. One of the speakers there was Rhys Shearsmith from, uh, from the League of Gentlemen. And likewise, um, when Blood on Satan's Claw was shown at Nottingham's Broadway Independent Cinema, guess who introduced the film? Mark Gatiss. So. Yeah. Oh, and, and actually Audible have just done uh, an audio play based on Blood, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw. I can't remember who precisely is involved with it, but it's at least two members of the League of Gentlemen. I, I think Mark Gatiss and, and Rishi Smith are in there. And now we take a look at psychogeography and hauntology. Do we really need to even explain these? No, move on. Yeah, common terms. Most people use them every day, don't they? <laughs> a bit of hauntology. From digging into you know, both the folk horror revival movement and, and that Adam Scoville book, these are two things that keep coming up over and over again. It took me a while to get my head around them, and I'm still not entirely sure I have because, yeah, I'm, I'm not an academic. But psychogeography is something that was uh, defined many, many years ago by the situationist Guy Debord, which talks about the relationship between the human psyche and and the landscape. In, in his case, he was talking primarily about the way people interact with cities. It, it seems to have been adopted as an idea by the folk horror movement. And, and it's this sort of two-way street between the way, you know, psyche shapes landscape and landscape shapes psyche. Do you think um, if we termed it as Jonas Locke, Loki, there's some parallel there. I mean, we, we, we use that term much more commonly in, in the kind of work that we do, and in, and uh, listeners probably will have you know, played a scenario called Janus Lockie or, or whatever or, or whatever it may be. I have no idea what you're talking really? about. Really? Where, the, where the, the spirit of a place. Yes. The spirit of a place, effectively. And, and, and a lot of folk horror is about place and spirit, and it seems to me a parallel to the kind of the idea of the psychogeography. Yeah, it certainly seems like it's tying in 
people and the place and like knitting them together but very much about rural places and the way they kind of knit together with the people there and i need to stop saying janus Loki and say janus Lokai. well you better add no, keep that yeah and what's the deal with hauntology <laughs> hauntology repeat after me okay so yeah this is a term that was defined by the postmodernist philosopher uh, jacques derrida we touched upon it earlier. Uh, he used it in a very specific sense to do with uh, you know, Marxism, but it's been adopted you know, in a much wider capacity since then. And the basic idea is that it is the intrusion of the past on the present, specifically you know, something that's, that's been referred to as the nostalgia for lost futures. So we talk about the idea that all of this folk horror stuff that, that we've been discussing so far has come out of the 1970s or has been influenced by the, the 1970s. So even when we talk about the revival, almost everyone is still trying to recapture those elements of what made all that stuff so fucking scary. But taking that step further, it's not just a revival of kind of recapturing what, what our exemplars from the 1970s are because they were still trying to recapture a previous era there is you know if you look at Lull and satan's claw the story isn't contemporary to the 1970s yeah. it's set in the idyllic rural bucolic kind of english countryside that's what it, that's the setting and it corrupts it yeah so they're not really um true to life 1970s settings are they i mean the wicker man is a contemporary setting but it's you know, it's again. Not, it's not set in. It's not set yeah. in Glasgow or Edinburgh. It's it set in some island. That, but, that, yeah, but it's yeah. not that. I mean, it, it, just that. I mean, it's you know, explicitly Lord Summer Isle has tried to bring back all these ancient pagan traditions. So again, mm. it is about the past being superimposed on the present. Indeed, and he even couches it in in modern scientific terms when he does so, in terms yeah. of the reasoning behind it. Um, so it is this kind of strange hybrid of contemporary and archaic. Harkening back to the Lovecraft inward of the week there. <laughs> but there's also this aspect that, you know, th there were so many other things that influenced us in the 1970s that have, have bled through to this that get lumped in with the folk horror movement for this reason. The prime example is probably the public information films that were shown to children in the 1970s, some of which are more terrifying than any horror film you'll see. And most of these can be found on YouTube, am I right? Yeah, yeah, just um, yeah. put in public information film, 1970s, or, or classics such as Dark and Lonely Water, uh, starring Donald Pleasance as the spirit of Dark and Lonely Water, luring, luring unwary children to their doom. Other classics include Apaches. Scott, that's yeah. one that had a particular okay. effect on you, I believe. Well, I, I hadn't seen Apaches as a kid. Um, I saw The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Water. I saw Apaches for the first time a few weeks ago on YouTube. I mean, you saw it as a kid, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I was shown it in middle school. I was like 10 years old and we were all gathered in the hall and they put this film on, which is a warning about the dangers of rural settings, about drowning in slurry pits, about getting hit by tractors, about drinking mystery stuff in unmarked bottles in sheds. And it's really gruesome and horrific. It's, and it's basically Final Destination with kids. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and this was shown and, to and, us. And it's, not, and it's not just, you know, shown off camera. They, they, it's pretty visceral. Yeah. And you see the deaths. And, you know, they're, 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 far, they're far, in a way, more graphic than, than many what would have been considered video nasties well, in the early 80s. I, actually, I mean, the, the most horrifying of them all you don't see, there's the, the little girl who, you know, drinks in the mystery bottle, drinks, you know, what we 
assume it's turpentine. And, you know, she doesn't feel very well immediately afterwards. And then we see the outside of the house oh. afterwards where she's she's calling to her parents saying she doesn't feel well. And then we just get this extended scene of, you know, her, the, her bedroom window lit up and just these screams of terror. Yeah. You know, the absolute agony. And then, you know, the following day, just all her belongings being cleared out of school. We got all these kids playing with each other and every day there's like one less of them. <laughs> it's like literally it's like the final destination. Like the, the other classic, I mean, you got Apaches, which was set on a uh, set on a farm, The Dangers of Exploring Farmyards. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the other one, but there's one set on a building site, which is ah. exactly the same premise, but don't go wandering around building sites as a kid and playing with the, uh, you know, the piles of bricks and the tools and so but on. How do we think these... Um, films that we're mentioning now, these public information films, how are they actually feeding into folk horror? Are they really feeding into it or do they kind of share a similar aesthetic? It's, it is this idea, I think, of the fact that we are trying to recapture this 1970s aesthetic, these, these things that frightened us in the 1970s. These public information films, they may not have set out as, to be horror films, but they use the technique, they use the language of horror films, they use the same tools as the, the horror films we've discussed and the television programmes we've discussed. One of the things about folk horror, particularly that you see in the cinema and TV of the 1970s, is this sort of sense of disquiet. And that is a strong link to these films because there's a strong sense of disquiet, particularly in things like The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Water. There's a sense of wrongness about the landscape that you know something bad is going to happen, and in fact, it does every time. Not only is modern life hard, the very landscape is dooming and trying to kill you. Yes. If only they'd made a public information film about paedophiles, they might have hit the nail on the head, really, in the 70s, but... (laughs) Well, you, you mentioned one earlier. No, no, you, you mentioned one earlier, didn't you? Stranger, oh, the Stranger Danger. Danger. Stranger Danger, they yeah. did. Well, they did. And that, I mean, I remember watching that as a seven year old in school, similar to you, Paul. You know, we all heard it into the assembly. I mean, it's, it's, it's these men, these sort of dark shaped men in kind of like dark grey Mac raincoats who had these kind of dark sunglasses, but they take them off and they have these kind of like swirling eyes. It's like, oh my. So they, so they weren't wearing tracksuits and gold medallions? No, they, they weren't so doing they weren't the DJs, quite, right? Quite, so, quite, got it quite right but it was absolutely freaking scared the hell out of me (laughs) and now we see this kind of thing mocked and um kind of brought back to us in a in a in a humorous way with scarfolk council if you've not come across these these have taken the kind of imagery that we're talking about in public information leaflets and films and you know made very black comedic versions of them which we see shared on uh, facebook and i'm sure we can uh, link to some of those in the show notes yeah i mean that that really ties in very much with this whole idea of hauntology because you know scarfolk in in the scarfolk council stuff is this county of england that has remained in the 1970s everything they issue is still dated in the 1970s the rest of the world has moved on they haven't How does folk horror relate to Lovecraft and The Call of Cthulhu? Well, I think if we think about stories such as maybe the Dunwich Horror, we see a small community, a very rural community, um, carrying out strange rites to what might seem like pagan ceremonies and so on, um, and outsiders coming in to to try and find out more about what's going on. Um, This seems very much rooted in a kind of a a folk horror aesthetic. And and the landscape is very important to to those stories of Lovecraft. We see it again with the colour out of space, right? Uh, The picture in the house as well. 
I mean, a fairly minor story, but I think that's probably one of his most folk horrorish pieces. Uh, the, the Whisper in Darkness. I mean, that is rural strange rituals, standing stones, woodland, uh, isolation, landscape. I mean, this almost seems to define much of Lovecraft's mythos writing, is that mm. he's very interested in not only architecture, but also landscape. And he's also very interested in people. Sometimes the uh, what might call the, the academics or the kind of upper classes of, of academia, but also in the common folk and their beliefs. He tends to cast those in a fairly derogatory light, I would say, quite often. Yes. Um, as kind of debased or, or archaic, one might use the word. You know, those have seemed very strong aspects of the folk horror that we've talked about. But while derogatory, but he still holds that they may have power. It's not a uh, a myth or a veneer. There is true power beneath that as well. So there's while derogatory, there is also a kind of I'm sure respect is the quite word, but but if you if you see what I mean, the uh, there is a there is a potency to it. Yeah, it is that whole idea of skewed moral beliefs. Yes. The other thing with Lovecraft, of course, that that runs through many of his stories is this is this love of the past, mm. which we see repeated in 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 the kind of folk horror traditions of the, the hauntology kind of stuff. Where, you know, you look at Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is just a massive love song towards you know Lovecraft's providence in in years gone by as a child. In the story, it's Boston, but I mean, you know, we see through the illusion there. The stories of uh, of the protagonist wandering streets looking for looking for the the lost garret he found one day, and and and. and the whole embodiment of the landscape as a, as a living, breathing character that we see repeated in Lovecraft throughout. But it's also the style as well, because we talk about the fact that the folk horror revival uses a lot of these tropes and methods of storytelling and, and so on that we saw in the 1970s and tries to reinvent them for the modern day. I mean, Lovecraft did that in his writings. I mean, Lovecraft wrote in the early 20th century, but his style was not a contemporary style. He was very self-consciously archaic. And, you know, in, in some ways this, you know, it seems to be his love of Victoriana, wanting to be a Victorian gentleman, and the fact that, you know, he's reinventing that in his own terms. And what about Call of Cthulhu? How can we bring these themes into Call of Cthulhu? Do they closely relate? Well, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, I think people will find very familiar, unearthing things, best left forgotten, pagan, heathen rites, um, pre-human rites, folklore beliefs uh, arising from encounters with the mythos that, you know, people uh, reinterpret, they don't understand the mythos, they can't put voice to what the what the, we might call the term, what a migo is, so they call it a demon or a devil or a, a bonable, a bonable show, snowman, blah, 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 or uh, <laughs> so on. And we see numerous scenarios where the investigators are employed or, or they go to some rural location and interact with the people and their ways are not quite like ours. I mean, there's a few scenarios that stand out that we can point out. You know, Matt wrote uh, An Amaranthine Desire. Scott wrote Blackwater Creek. Also, things really behind Roots, the scenario Roots in there. Yeah, that was Simon um, Breaker. Simon, yeah. yeah. And in fact, whilst it hasn't been a central pillar of of this forthcoming campaign, it certainly runs through its through the scenarios within it, which uh, which uh, some of you have play tested with me is the uh, the Curse of Seven campaign that is uh, will be forthcoming down the road from Chaosium. But that again is it has a sense of place and countryside in it that, that is quite you know folk horror-y. And I think even outside Lovecraft, there's that 
intermingling of cosmic horror and folk horror. For example, that, that's pretty much where Nigel Neal's work lives. For me, that just underlines the fact that they're not necessarily as separate genres as they appear at first. These intrusions of the past, these intrusions through the, the means of folklore, can be masks for alien influence just as much as anything else. Yeah. So I think, you know, thinking about how we can use this in Call of Cthulhu and horror games, it, you know, it's like taking um, real folklore, which, you know, is not a, an uncommon thing we find in, in, you know, most scenarios in some cases, you know, taking folklore, twisting it, looking at looking at communities, how they interact amongst themselves and how they might interact with a group of invest- outsiders, investigators coming in and how that might involve or, or become the central part of the story, perhaps. The idea then that isolated communities could build up their own moral codes, their own sets of practices based on the mythos. The fact that these could then reshape their entire way of life into something that is unrecognisable to the outside world. I feel like these folk horror stories and films don't really feature monsters very much. Very rarely. Very rarely, right? It's more about the people and the place. And it may be that they, they worship some kind of monsters or whatever, but, but those don't often manifest in the, in the story. Right. So perhaps they shouldn't manifest in the game either. Well, potentially, yeah. I mean, potentially, the, I mean, a good monster for this that isn't a monster in a sense is, is the Loigar, which often is yeah. pretty unbeatable. The very basis for science about, about Loigar tend to be whether Loigar just happens to be sleeping underneath the town, but its emanations affect the town. So you're so never going to meet it. You're never gonna, really going to meet it. And there's nothing you can really do about it. It's just kind of one of those situational kind of things. So that's, you know, if you wanted to use a monster you could do it in that way but um but yeah it's often it's often the effect on the community i mean you could have a scenario where uh someone in the village or the town or even the city has has had a mythos experience directly had a mythos experience and lived to tell the tale and actually it's their telling of the tale that actually is the scenario that actually that they've now changed their belief system in some way or or, or perverted it in some way there's actually impacting on other people and, and and the story is growing in some way or, or and or they're using it to kind of you know gain power of themselves and there is no actual mythos in the story because that happened pre-story it's actually the ramifications and effects of the mythos on the human populace well that ties in very strongly with our recent episodes on the mythos as religion so somebody's had that uh, mythos experience and now they've perhaps set up a cult much as we see we will see in the Wicker Man but you know that that could be that could manifest in all sorts of ways in small rural communities with their strange ways or, or if you just wanted to use it as colour instead of it being something as grand as community practices or some kind of church or religion just little folkloric elements you talk about the the malign influence of something intangible like the loigor I'm you know, folklore in the UK is full of uh, interactions with fairies. There are these quite often unseen entities that people will make offerings to. They'll leave bowls of milk out. They'll leave bread and so on. If you know, there is some malign influence, perhaps, in a town that is being kept at bay by all these apparently trivial, silly little rituals. You know, people hang- hanging oddly shaped corn dollies in their windows. And you know, every now and then, once every year, they mark the doors with blood or something like that and uh please keep the town safe it will just seem like odd silly superstition to people coming in and perhaps you know you've got a group of you know a family of new investigators who come to town who don't take part in all this because you know they're not part of that community you know why the hell would they make corn dollies then they start learning the hard way why people do that 
The, the other aspect is is uh, is this the idea of the past haunting the present. You can take that for what you will, whether that's a previous encounter with a mythos, belief systems. Call of Cthulhu games don't have to be about the monsters. You said it could be about a spell gone wrong that causes this kind of actual physical manifestation. It could just be the aftermath of the presence of something. You know, perhaps, you know, 100 years ago, um, Shabnigarath was summoned to this site and the site is still kind of corrupted and suffering in very unusual, strange ways that affect time and geography and and even mood, perhaps. There was that scenario that Kiri wrote many years ago where you end up taking refuge in some small village and oh, yes. you know the apples yeah. are still cropping in the you know in the middle of winter and so on. And I think that, you know, probably tied in with Shubnigarath as far as I remember. Yes. But they weren't yeah. suffering it so much as well, perhaps benefiting, but I'm sure it was a double edged sword. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, as if the color out of space has taught us anything, the, the first iterations of, of, a, of a mythos presence of whatever it may be is beneficial. You know, people want, you know, you want massive fruit that looks cool and glows in strange colors. It's great. It's only when you then taste it or, or the after or the later fruit bears, you know, more fruit that you get that sour and it corrupts and it becomes this other thing. And also the idea of a place being transformed by some event in the past. And one idea that occurred to me when I was mulling this over was there's a place in Oxfordshire, not too far from here, about 30 miles from here, um, a stone circle called the Rollwright Stones. And part of the mythology there is that there was a king passing through the landscape and he had some knights with him. And uh, they basically fell foul of a local witch. And they were turned to stone, and these stones around there are supposed to be the petrified knights. And there was one stone called the King Stone, which, you know, he managed to get a few steps further uh, ahead of everything else, and it's just outside the circle, and he's petrified there. Some later myths that, you know, on occasion these stones come to life, you know, once a year, when the conditions are right. A sort of mythos version of that, that, you know, there was something or someone there which interacted with some entity from beyond, some god maybe, did some ritual that went wrong, and have been petrified there. And maybe under certain circumstances, they just start to bleed through or start to animate. These entities may not be human, or they may be old sorcerers, but, you know, it's just, if you're in the area and they're starting to come to life again, that probably wouldn't be good. And in terms of themes for folk horror, you know, we've talked about a few themes, but just to repeat them, they, they tend to be, there may be comedy in them, but they're not overtly comedic. They're, they tend to be more bleak. I always think of them as grey. <laughs> yes. Grey, this kind of, they're not black and white, they're always grey, and that's both in tone and in morals. Yeah. I think we see through most of the examples we've cited, there's no real solution to the or there's no real tangible solution to many of the situations that are set up because it's either just too big, too unwieldy, or, or just too incomprehensible to actually to deal with. So the only result is to well well that's that's the moral quandary. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing I see with them is they tend to use, to coin a phrase, nameless horrors. They tend to be they don't tend to have vampires and werewolves and so on they as we said they don't tend to feature monsters very much but neither do they seem to use the traditional kind of supernatural tropes that we usually see in you know films if, yeah. if, if anything it tends to be generic terms for things that would be considered bad or wrong or evil so things that were you know like you know, devilry or demonic or whatever it may be if if they're ever used at all 
it, it tends to be in these general terms rather than, you know, and, and you're quite this doesn't tend to be the vampire or the werewolf, although there's no reason why those kind of traditions can't be in there, but subverted in some way. Or alternatively, I mean, in some of them you do see names out of mythology and, and old gods being name-checked. But you know, those either tend to be masks for other things or they are certainly not active uh, participants. I, again, this is something we'll, we'll talk about in The Wicker Man. But there's a number of old pagan gods name-checked in that. None of them ever turn up. None, we never see any you know, effect. But that doesn't stop people from worshipping them. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, it is that time when we thank everyone who has given us money via Patreon. The money that you give us, as we've said many times before, basically makes the show possible. It pays for all our running costs and, yeah, it it is the fuel that drives the good friends of Jackson Elias. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have some some new people to thank, but before then, I think uh, we've got something else. We have. Modesty precludes you from reading out, I know, Scott, but uh, recently we've released a couple of uh, readings. Uh, One was put out some time ago, and I reposted it at Christmas, which is Scott reading the music of Eric Zahn, and also a second weird whispering, myself reading The Outsider, Short Tales by H.P. Lovecraft. And these go out to every backer. And we have some feedback from Chris Glue. Thank you for reposting this. It's one of my favourites, and for me, one of the most entrancing HPL stories. One I return to often. To hear Scott read it with such a deep understanding of the text is terrifically satisfying. So often, readings miss the nuances of HPL's prose, or can't even pronounce the um, the, the rude de doacil. Um, go, go, do it. That one. This recording evokes the stifling, claustrophobic, dreamlike feverishness I experienced when I first read it. I hope there are plans to record more stories. Here's to a great 2018. I'd just say, where were you reading that, uh, Chris? <laughs> the uh, feverish, or is it claustrophobic, dreamlike feverishness you experienced? It sounds like you were locked in a cupboard under the stairs or something, maybe, maybe suffering from the outer effects of flu. Feverishness. He's down, he's down in the southwest, you know. Is he? Oh. Yeah, I believe so. You're not seeing Paul's expression when he says that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Take, takes a lot for someone from Buckingham to have that attitude. I lived, I lived in Plymouth for a while myself, you know. Anyway, um, so yes, Chris, we do have some more in the can, actually. We have another story from uh, read by Mr. Scott Dorwood. Uh, oh, yes, yes. I, I recorded a reading of Pigment's model, didn't I? Yes, and that'll yes. be coming out soon. Well, I say soon. <laughs> But anyway, on to the backers. We have some new backers to extend our thanks to. So I'd like to say a big thanks to Luke Harris. Indeed, thank you very much, Luke. Yes, thank you, Luke. And also thanks out to Frank Shea. So thank you very much, Frank. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you, Frank. And thank you to David Wing. Thank you very much, David. Yep, thank you very much, David. And thank you very much to Carsten Pohl. Thank you, Carsten. Indeed, thank you, Carsten. And also thanks go out to Chris Crockett. So thank you very much, Chris. Yes, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And now we move up to the $3 tier. Thank you and cheers to good friend of the good friend, Steve Dempsey. Cheers, Steve. Yeah, cheers, Steve. And thanks to Rory Young. Indeed, thank you very much, Rory. 
Thank you, Rory. And cheers. And our cheers and thanks also go out to Dan Domi. So thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Yes, thank you very much and cheers, Dan. Cheers, Dan. Cheers. And thank you and cheers to Steve Wallace. Indeed, cheers, Steve. Cheers, Steve. And thanks to Forrester Gary, who has upped his pledge from $1 to $3. Hey, so thank you very much, Forrest. Yes, thank you and cheers, Forrest. Cheers. And then, on to the singing. Oh, oh do we have to? In a folk God. styly. <laughs> Fuck that shit, just sing. We can't even sing properly. Why do you think we can do that? Uh, You're going to lead us yeah. in a folk anthem, Mike. You, yeah. That's what yeah. you're here for, isn't it? You, you may have heard of finger in the ear folk. This is going to be finger in both ears, folks. Folks? Folks. <laughs> or maybe just that's all, folks. <laughs> Because of uh, our recent release of the Blasphemous Tome, we did get a lot of new backers, and we still have a backlog of people to thank through the medium of song. We do limit ourselves to two songs per episode for reasons of common human decency. So if you have not been sung to yet, as well as counting yourself lucky, please be patient with us. As much as it pains me, there are some backers that give us more money out there. <laughs> what, what a hardship, Matt. What a hardship. I get, also, I get inflicted with this audio torture each and every time. But you're the most musical one among us, Matt. <laughs> Why do you think it hurts him and not us, Paul? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't put many points in music. <laughs> and we, don't, we never seem to get a tick in it either. <laughs> what's, on, what's going on there? So anyway, our first song today goes out to Vincent Connolly. Uh, Vincent, you are our first victim today. Yeah, thank you, Vincent, and and prepare yourself. Uh, Vincent Conley, oh, Conley. Vincent Conley. Our second victim. They always seem to come in pairs for, uh, for masochism, don't they? So, Stefan Bede. So, sorry, Stefan. Thank you, and apologies, Stefan. Thank you, Stefan. Stefan Bede. when I was on the internet the other day there were people writing things about you unbelievable though it is I know right what did they say I don't know I didn't read any of it (laughs) well you should head on over to iTunes Mike really what's there Paul well there's a review of the good friends of Jackson Elias podcast yes this one from Joe Blood and it reads as follows while there are several good Call of Cthulhu podcasts out there in the hoary wine cellar of gaming media This is always a treat. That vintage bottle you stash away for a quiet moment, highly recommended. Well, thank thank you very much, Joe, or Joe Blood, or whatever you prefer being called. After the noises that we just made in the you know, in our attempt to record some backer songs, the idea of us ever giving anyone a quiet moment seems quite bizarre. But thank you. 
don't know about you, but the idea of being compared to a fine wine aging gracefully is uh, weird. <laughs> <coughs> we also had some feedback about our first episode on the mythos as a religion. Tor Nielsen wrote on G+. In Lovecraft's stories, cultists live where decent folk don't. The sinister bayou, the tenements of Red Hook. It doesn't have to be that way, and even nameless cultist number four will likely be missed by some non-cultist people. Imagine the scenario where tooled-up co-workers and loved ones come around investigating why Cousin Jane got massacred at that New Age mindfulness retreat. That's a good point. I mean, I think thanks to you know the fact that we base so much on Lovecraft and his prejudices, we do tend to think of cultists as as being these disposable anonymous people from what society sees as disposable backgrounds. But yeah, the problems for the investigators get ramped up by massive degrees if they start killing people that the wider society cares about. I mean, it's a fairly horrible reflection on the world that this is the case. But at the same time, it's unfortunately pretty true also over on g plus tim vert has an interesting comment regarding cultists as well i love the idea that the investigators are invited to attend the wedding of a dear friend from college they're getting married on the beach how romantic until the bride's side of the family starts coming up from the sea yeah I, what, what kind of dress code is that i mean seaweed and gold tiaras i mean that's f- bringing an episode of Doctor Who to mind, actually, with the Sea Devils. Mm -hmm. That'd be a marriage. And he gives another example. Or a fatal car accident in a rural community. The locals promise the survivors, don't worry, someone is coming to help. Then the representatives of the charnel god arrive with an ambulance and roadside assistance for the living. So... Why is folk horror such an enduring subgenre? I often ask myself these questions. What do you think? Well, I wonder if it's something that lots of people are familiar with. I mean, I've come across it a little bit. I didn't know much about it before this episode. I mean, you say you don't know much about it, but almost all the references that we discussed, all the things that that um, define the movement, you were familiar with. It's just you hadn't necessarily made the connection of, of linking them all together. It hadn't... The disparate pieces of information hadn't coalesced in your mind. Oh my god, I've correlated all the, the contents now. Your, your island of ignorance is sunk. Ah, damn it. I think with me, it's a horror that a lot of people can relate to. Because it's very much grounded in fact. Like as we were looking at the Unholy Trinity saying that there's only one that has a supernatural reference in there. It's something that's very much grounded in a world that the viewer or the reader can understand and very much relate to. So I think it may be... It's that that it cuts a little bit maybe too close to home, that it's something that strikes a chord with them and think, yeah, this this resonates more. This is something they do find generally more horrific and that it lingers in the memory. Like your examples of the public information broadcasts. I mean, I've, I've not seen them because they're definitely a bit before my time. But the fact that you can remember them so vividly even now, kind of point made, really. And they feel like a bit like, you know, stories told around the campfire. Not only do stories around the campfire fit into the folk horror genre as an actual thing. You know, you could have a story of people telling stories around the campfire. They feel like the kind of stories that you could present to anybody much easier than some of the more things that are more deeply rooted in, in Lovecraft or other sort of subgenres of horror. The other thing for me is that the whole folk horror thing, it's about 
taking a large carving knife and plunging it into the heart of optimism. <laughs> and um, that, That's how I start off every morning, Mike. <laughs> indeed. No, I mean, these stories aren't optimistic in any sense. If there is optimism in them, it's certainly not from the perceived common view. There, there may be optimism from some of the people within, within the tales and stories, but it's a skewed optimism. It's a different optimism to what the viewer or the reader uh, might view as optimistic and often you know these stories end unwell they end with the a death of optimism for me it's very much about the dual nature of the past and memory it's the fact that you know particularly as you get older you tend to look back at the past as being you know a warm cozy time full full of traditions that comfort you and and things that made sense and a simplicity but with folk horror, it's the reminder that all of that is a mask, that it covers up horrors that have always been with us, uh, and that these horrors are there just waiting to come back uh, and, and intrude in our lives at any time. And indeed, it is our modern perception that's a fairy tale to the hidden truth of darkness behind it all. And it seems like Christianity is equally no more than a fairy tale in these stories. It comes up against the old ways, but often doesn't really do much for the believers. It doesn't actually do much, but it, but equally it isn't undermined. Its sense of belief is respected. You see that particularly in Lord Summerisle. But it isn't pushed aside. It is, it is recognised. However, it just has little value, I guess, to proponents who are not Christian. And this is something we'll come back to in the next show. So until then, it's farewell from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Tally-ho! From me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.